for today is from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. We're observing today the theme of joy during our Advent season. This is the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we're continuing today our season of Advent. The word Advent means coming or arrival. This is a season that Christians have observed for over a millennium. All of you, in some sense, have likely observed Advent in the past. If you have ever attended a Christmas Eve service that is part of Advent calendar, during Advent, we teach our hearts to do something that we don't do very well. That is waiting. Advent is a season of waiting. As we remember the first coming of Christ, we remember His coming again. So we wait. Each week, we'll remember one word that helps us wait for the coming of Christ. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And this is what the candles to my left represent with the white candle in the center representing Christ, the light of the world. Advent is about waiting, but because Christ has come, Advent is also about knowing that God fulfills His promises. And if He promised to send His Son the first time and He fulfilled that promise, He will fulfill the promise of His second coming also. Today, we turn, we turn to the word joy. One thing I've noticed over the years, even in my own long 40 years of experience, is that joy comes easier to the young. Life and age seem to often make us skeptical about joy. As we age, we may start thinking that joy is really for the naive. Others are joyful because they, they don't know or understand the hardships of life. But I do. Joylessness may become a badge of honor for us. We live in the real world. This is an evil, cruel, wicked world. And only those who have not experienced such things find joy in life. We grow to appreciate and understand figures like the Grinch or Ebenezer Scrooge. Perhaps it is true that our hearts 
are two sizes too small. And nothing in this world can cause it to grow. But how important is joy? Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is of equal importance with love, peace, patience. Joy is as important as, as, important as kindness. Joy is as important as self-control. Joy is a necessary aspect of the Christian life because joy is the result of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. Christians must be exuberant in joy. We must pursue joy as though we are pursuing life itself. A joyless Christian is a contradiction of sorts. Joy is a clear mark of genuine Christianity. Joy is a clear mark of faith. And as we're going to see in our text today, joy is a commandment for everyone who is found in the Lord. This is an important consideration for us during the Advent season. As we teach our hearts to wait in the Lord, we must not begrudgingly wait for the return of Christ. But our waiting must be filled with joy. Friends, I want to remind you today that Christmas is about joy. So today, as we, as we look into our text, we're going to consider four calls. We're going to consider a call to rejoice, a call to reasonableness, a call to resist anxiety, and a call to rest in the Lord. A call to rejoice. If I were to ask you, which commandments in the Bible are we to obey today? Perhaps, perhaps you would say the Ten Commandments in light of Christ's finished work. It's right. It's a good answer. Perhaps some of you would mention love of God and love of neighbor. Yes, that's a good answer. But the Bible is filled with commandments that must shape the life of the believer. What we have in verse 4 is nothing short of a commandment for believers to pursue joy. Twice the apostles tells the Philippians, rejoice. It is interesting that we, only, we often think of joy as a mere emotion that we either have or we don't or perhaps we think of joy as a reaction right certain circumstances in life produce joy in us other circumstances in life will not produce joy but clearly this is not what transpires here in this verse i'm not saying that joy is less than an emotion no what I'm saying is that as Christians, we're called to steward not just our thoughts and actions, but also our emotions. If we are commanded to be joyful, that means 
we can actually accomplish it. That means we can actually have joy in life regardless of circumstances. Friends, we are responsible for the way we feel. We are responsible to direct our emotions in a godly way, in a, in, not in an ungodly way. Perhaps you've never thought of this. Sure, we're responsible for our actions. Perhaps you've thought about the fact that we are responsible for our thoughts, right? We can keep them captive. But what the apostle is telling us here is that we are responsible for how we feel. We are responsible for the joy that we must have in our lives. So much of the problems we're facing today in our world stem from, stem from or follow uh, from us following our emotions instead of stewarding them. Listen to your hearts. Well, the prophets would have something to say about that. If you don't feel satisfied in your gender, change your gender. If you don't feel satisfied with your spouse, change your spouse. If you don't feel satisfied with your job, change your job. And seldom do we give serious consideration that satisfaction is born first in our hearts and not in our circumstances. American theologian Jonathan Edwards says in his book, The Religion's Affections, the following. True Christian fortitude consists in strength of mind through grace. Don't miss this. Through grace exerted in two things. In ruling and suppressing the evil and unruly passions, emotions, and affections of the mind. And in steadfastly and freely exerting and following good affections and dispositions. Edward reminds us that it is by the grace of God that we're able to direct our emotions towards what is good and away from what is evil. Friends, this may be one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life. But God calls us not to simply believe in Him, but to steward our hearts towards Him in joy. And when, we're, when our hearts are geared towards God, our emotions become shaped after Him also. As a man thinks, so he is. And if our thoughts are constantly of God, in God, about God, we will be godly. God has the right to require of us emotions that are godly. Remember the greatest commandment. You shall love your God with all your heart. Pastor Lucas, does this mean that by the grace of God, I'm able to conquer my anger? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what that means. Does this mean that by the grace of God, I'm able to conquer fear? Yes, that's exactly what that means. Does this mean that by the grace of God, I might be able to conquer disappointment, depression, despondency? Yes, 
That's exactly what that means. Yes, friends, the grace of God is the greatest tool, weapon that we have to steward our emotions. Yes, friends, the, great, the grace of God is greater than our hearts. But how, how do we begin? How do we begin this process of stewarding our emotions rather than following our emotions? Well, we begin by prayer. We begin by confessing to the Lord that apart from His grace, we can't do it. Apart from what He gives us, apart from His transforming work in our hearts, we confess to God, we can't do it. But He can do it in us. Asking the Lord to conquer our hearts Himself. And then we proceed by preaching. Preaching the truths of the gospel to ourselves. Where we are weak, God is strong. Where our sins abound, His grace abound all the more. And we remember the gospel over and over again so that we stop trying to control our emotions based on our own strength. And we begin pursuing that by the promises that God makes to transform our hearts, to remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. We begin with prayer, we proceed with preaching, and we persevere with patience. Knowing that God is the one who ultimately conquers every corner of our hearts. Friends, the stewarding of our emotions, that is going to take a lifetime. It, it is going to take an entire lifetime for us to truly understand joy and love. For us to truly understand patience and long-suffering. Because God has begun the work in us, and He has given us His spirits, but we are right now being shaped after Christ. So we pray, we preach, but we wait patiently in the Lord. The call to rejoice here is not a call to a fickle happiness that depends on circumstances and puts on facades. No, this call is a call to overcome our circumstantial impulses and embrace a glad heart. When? When should we be joyful? Paul says, always. Friends, this is a difficult commandment. As a matter of fact, this is an impossible commandment. It is a calling to always be joyful. So think of the greatest hardship that you've ever gone through in your life. The Lord is calling you to joy at that very moment. It is a calling to rejoice in light of pain, suffering, disease, loss, financial trouble. Yes, it is a commandment we cannot obey. But notice that Paul pens an important detail in verse 4. He gives us a spiritual location where joy flourishes. A spiritual location for true, lasting, heart-deep joy. He says, rejoice. In the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord means that the focus of our joy is in the fact that we are united with God. The Christian's attitude of joy and gladness is rooted not in the fact that all around us is stable, but in the fact that 
all inside of us is at peace with God. The prophet Habakkuk helps us understand why we should find unwavering joy in the Lord after giving his reader a list of circumstances that would normally cause fear and doubt. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Okay, he's saying the same thing, right? I will rejoice in the Lord, but listen to this. He further explains that. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. For the believer, joy in the midst of turmoil exists because God is a God who saves. This is why the prophet Jonah is able to, to pen a song of praise in the belly of a great fish. Salvation is the promise of God to all believers that at the end, all who are in the Lord will be delivered from all their troubles. Joy happens today because our future is secure with the Lord. Friends, Christians rejoice in the Lord because He is the God of our salvation. And if you're not a Christian here today, there's nothing we want more for you to know and understand than what it means for God to be your salvation. By the way, the name Jesus means simply that God saves. But God saves from what? You may never have considered this, but God saves us from Himself. Friend, the Bible tells us that we all stand in rebellion against God. We have transgressed His law and His bow of wrath is about to be poured on all humanity. A day of judgment is coming, a day of reckoning, and we will all individually give account for every idle word, every thought, every deed, every motion, not steward towards God. We'll give an account to God for everything. And friend, the God who is perfect in His holiness will condemn every sin committed against him but god is right now in this season of waiting giving all of us an opportunity to repent from our rebellion towards him this rebellion is called sin and we're called to turn from our sins and trust in the son of god jesus christ jesus unlike us never sinned he had a perfect track record of obedience of righteousness and god sent forth his son to be the savior of the world jesus came to save how by dying on the cross the baby that was born in bethlehem would die abandoned and forsaken under the wrath of the father on the cross there is something utterly unique about Jesus' death. Unlike the rest of humanity, he did not deserve to die. But he did die. Why? So that he could experience death for you and for me. But when Jesus meets death, death dies. Death loses. Jesus 
resurrected. And he said that everyone who believes in him, though they die in the flesh, they shall live in the spirit. Just as Jesus won victory over death, we who trust in him will also have victory over death. And friends, that is a great reason for us to rejoice, isn't it? That our greatest enemy has been conquered. That though in our body we may die, our spirit will go to be with the Lord. And, and, and more than that, our spirit will be with the Lord. But one day Jesus will return. And that those who died in Christ will, be, will rise first. And our spirits will once again be reunited with our bodies. And will live forever with the resurrected Christ. So friends, what is the greatest problem you're facing today? What, 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 what is stealing your joy today? Let me remind you that if you are in Christ, all that will dissipate one day. Your spirit will be together with your body and you will be just like Christ. So rejoice. We may experience physical death, but if we believe that Jesus came to save sinners, if we, if we admit our sins, that is called confession, and trust that Jesus died in our place, that's called faith, we will not die under the condemnation of Almighty God. No, our sins are forgiven. Jesus paid for them. There is nothing left for us to pay. We will experience His salvation instead of His condemnation. Though we die, we shall live. My question to you today is, do you believe this? Do you find joy in this promise? Well, let's turn now to a call to reasonableness. The Bible is not a random book. It is not a random coincidence that the Bible follows this strong double commandment to rejoice in verse 4 with an admonition to relate well to others. We must make our reasonableness, some of your translations may say gentleness, Known to everyone, reasonable relationships are a source of joy, aren't they? Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There is a sense in which joy must be a communal thing. It is impossible to experience true, true joy if the relationships that surround us are filled with tension. If we are unreasonable as we relate to others, we won't experience joy. So what, what Paul is saying here is when we rejoice in the Lord, this joy is extended horizontally. As we apply this to our church, we must be reasonable with one another. Sure, there are certain aspects of the Christian faith that are non-negotiables. We, we hold firm to the gospel to the nature of the triune God, to the person of Christ, His penal substitutionary atonement on the cross. But are there, there are many areas in the Christian life that we're called to be reasonable with one another. Christian liberty is a concept we must embrace and foster. We live freely in the Lord. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free so when we disagree on secondary and tertiary theological matters, we are reasonable with one another. 
we understand that not everybody is going to think like us. And if they did, guess what? They would be wrong in many aspects because we are wrong in many things, aren't we? It is good to have diversity of thought in the church. When we have different views on how a ministry should be run, we're reasonable with one another. When we have different approaches to parenting, vocation, politics, we seek to be reasonable with one another. Now, notice that Paul here is not simply saying that we must be reasonable people. Okay, If we are approached by other people, we should show reasonableness. No, verse 5 admonishes us to actively pursue or make our reasonableness known to everyone. In other words, we Christians are to promote an environment of reasonableness around us. We are to pursue ways to be reasonable. We are to look for ways to make ourselves understood. And we are to look for ways to understand others. Earlier, in the same letter, as a minister of the gospel to the Philippians, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What is Paul saying? Let your reasonableness be known to all. That's what he's saying. So friends, so brothers and sister, mem sisters, members of Central Baptist Church, do you want to make your pastor full of joy? Be of the same mind. Be reasonable with one another. Be patient. Be gentle in relationships. Walk with one another. Friends, let me tell you something. You've walked into this church and you've joined this church. You're a part of this church. Let me, let me just tell you, as of right now, right, the church is being sanctified. So as a part of being a part of a church is we've got to deal with other people's messes. And we've got to do that gladly. Why? Because they're dealing with our messes too, right? So do you want to have a church that is thriving in unity? Let us be understanding. Let us be gentle. Let us walk with one another as we point one another to Christ so we can grow in maturity together. Be a promoter of unity in our church, even in disagreements and divergence of thoughts. As Christians, we're not islands. Joy is part of living in a reasonable community. Joy is part of living in the kingdom of God. When reasonableness is practiced before everyone, joy overflows throughout the entire community. Well, in our next verse, Paul points us to or calls us to resist now anxiety. Anxiety is the enemy of joy. It is impossible to experience true joy when anxiety plagues our hearts. Anxiety is a common temptation in a world full of trouble. But just as Paul commands us to rejoice in chapter 4, as we steward our emotions, here he commands us not to be anxious. But what is anxiety? 
Sure, there are certain things in life that should bring us a concern that drives us to action. Uh, it, it is good for us to demonstrate a good concern towards our brothers and sisters, others. But anxiety is when we worry about the things we can't do anything about. In a parallel passage in Matthew 6, Jesus our Lord says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, look, take care of what you can take care of today and then go to sleep. And wake up tomorrow, do it again tomorrow. The call here is not a call for us to be idle with issues that are at hand that we can do something about, but for us not to live in the land of what ifs. It is a call for proactivity in life while we entrust our future to the Lord. When we're anxious, we reveal that our hearts are not really trusting God. Anxiety downplays the sovereignty and the benevolence of God. But as we meditate on the goodness and nearness of God, we fend off anxiety. I remember when Boaz was little, he started walking. And Indy and I lived at, uh, well, our family, we lived at a cul-de-sac that had very little traffic down in Hollywood. So we would just let him roam around. So he would roam around. He would take five, ten steps, explore, and look back. We're near. Good. He would continue exploring. As long as he could see us, he was fine. But if he couldn't see us, well, let me just say, he was not a happy camper. Anxiety for him was a byproduct of being separated from his parents. Our nearness to our son kept him at peace. And we're not very different. When we know God is near, peace rules in our hearts. Just as the ground for rejoicing is our location in the Lord, our spiritual location in the Lord, our reason for not being anxious is the location of our relationship to God, is our nearness to God. Look at the end of verse 5. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Just as nearness of God is what enables us to find joy in light of difficult circumstances, the nearness of God is what enables us to fend off anxiety. Also notice that we're called to rejoice always, right? Permanent. And here we're told to be anxious about nothing. Paul is speaking in absolute. That's the goal of the Christian life. Why? Because Christ is full of absolutes. Christ always rejoiced. Christ was never anxious. It is necessary for a Christian to be in constant battle for joy and against anxiety so that we can grow in Christ's likeness. You know, I, I often, I, I, I find myself often saying, I'm not worried about anything. I only worry about my children. 
But this is not what Paul is saying here, is it? Is God sovereign over the life of our children? Is God not sovereign over all things? When India and I first learned that she was pregnant with Boaz, I fell into great fear and anxiety. I began having significant stomach problems, and I became overwhelmed with the thought of death. Not that I feared death itself, but I feared leaving my family. I told India one night, I'm afraid of dying and leaving you alone with this child that you longed for for so long. And India gave me perhaps the most mature answer I have ever heard in my life. She said, if that happens, the Lord will give us grace. Friends, her answer was not simplistic. Her answer was not circumstantial. Her answer was an answer of faith. We know that we will experience hardship in life. And the answer to fend off anxiety is not to put away the circumstances, but it's to put our trust in the God who is in control of all things. That answer Put away my anxiety. My wife pointed me towards faith. My wife reminded me that God is near. He is so near. He is able to give grace. We live in an anxious age. We eat in an anxious way. We communicate with anxiety. We would rather see a screen than see faces and hear voices. We look for peace in TV shows and social media, which end up adding to our anxiety. We try to inform ourselves through the news, which end up plaguing us with greater fear. We over-educate ourselves, believing that we can somehow add days to our existence beyond what the Lord has already appointed. Sure, victory over Anxiety can be difficult in certain circumstances, but the fact that God is near must be our sole, only source of comfort. Our greatest weapon against the enemy, anxiety, is that we must preach the truths of God to ourselves constantly. In Genesis 39, we learn the story of a young man called Joseph. We know him as Joseph of Egypt, he was put in prison unjustly. Joseph was condemned for a crime he did not commit and forgotten in prison for 15 years. One might say his situation, his circumstances were dire. One might say he had plenty of reason to despair. On the surface, it may seem that God had forgotten Joseph. But four times, four times in chapter 29 alone, do we hear that as Joseph is suffering and as Joseph is put in prison, the Lord was with Joseph. Friends, it is better to be with the Lord and lose all our freedoms than to experience every freedom on earth, but be apart from the Lord. Even 
The hardest of circumstances should produce joy in our lives if we can know that the Lord is with us. If we believe the Lord is only near when things are going our way, we do not believe the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible goes with His people wherever they go. If God's people are in Egypt, He is there with them. If God's people are in the wilderness, He is there with them. If God's people go to Babylon, He goes with them. If anyone who belongs to God walks through the valley of the shadow of death, God walks through the valley with them. Perhaps you are anxious today. Perhaps you have good reasons to struggle with anxiety. But friend, the Lord is near. This is the message of Christmas. The Lord is not sitting in heaven completely disconnected from the human experience. He draws near. And in no other way have we seen God drawing near more clearly than in the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ. God became man. This is one of the most radical assertions of the Christian faith. The story of Christmas is so unique and profound. It is actually an unbelievable story. It is not just the story of a baby born in a strange place that went on to live a pretty re remarkable life. No, this story is actually quite believable. We know stories of humble beginnings that go into success. Christmas is the story of a God who considers the condition of the people he created and enters their story. Why? Because that had no ultimate joy, no eternal joy in their lives. And only God himself could give his creation the joy and the hope they needed. Christ, fully God and fully man, is the only man that can offer that which is native to God alone. Joy that is able to defeat anxiety. Friends, this passage actually comes with a beautiful feature. It comes with an application that helps us. It doesn't just say, do not be anxious. But it gives us what we must put on in the place of anxiety. Instead of being anxious, what should we do? We should make our needs known to God through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. When we pray, we show evidence that we know God is near. And our prayer ought to be filled with supplications. That is, requests. God wants to know what we want, although He already knows even before we ask. And thanksgiving, we, 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 we tell the Lord what we think we need. God wants to hear that. God uses our prayers to meet our needs. Not that He gives us everything that we ask, but He shapes us through our prayer life. So, I truly believe that we have not because we ask not. And I truly believe that we will ask right when our passions and our desires are shaped after God and are shaped in him we tell the lord what we think we need and we thank him for providing exactly what we need 
And friends, we can all be honest. We live in a distracted world. We are distracted people ourselves. We often pay more attention to our phones than to prayer. But we must win the battle against distraction. If we're going to live a life of victory over anxiety, if we're going to live knowing that God is near, we must pray. Telling the Lord what is truly in our hearts. Prayer begins with honesty and trusting that He will supply our every need. Now let's turn to a call to rest in God. Finally, the result of relating to God in light of His nearness is peace. We return to our first week of Advent. Joy meets peace. Joy and peace are a couplet that often go together in the Bible. One depends on the other. Peace does not exist where joy is dead. Joy does not thrive where there is no peace. Listen to Isaiah 55 verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That's a new covenant promise. Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill, your, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of His Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Galatians 22, 23. We're given the fruit of the Spirit. And notice here, which two fruit of the, aspects of the fruit of the Spirit are together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why is that? Because joy and peace are holistic experiences, meaning they're experiences that involve our entire being. And ultimately, they transcend our circumstances. Joy and peace take place externally and internally told you last week that peace is not necessarily the absence of conflict, but an understanding that we are complete in God. Likewise, joy is not circumstantial happiness, but an understanding that we are always to be satisfied in God. Paul tells us here that in Christ we are able to experience, experience a special kind of peace. He calls it a peace that surpasses understanding. What does this mean? This is a peace that does not depend on our intellectual ability to exist. We, we don't need to make sense of every detail of our lives in order to have peace with God. We often struggle with our thoughts, don't we? We struggle with our past decisions, we, we second-guess ourselves. We believe that somehow we have taken paths that have put us where we are, and if we could just reason our way back, we can find ourselves out of the circumstances we're in today. We believe that peace comes through information. Peace comes through understanding. But friends, our minds are too small. We can never comprehend all that God is doing. God is orchestrating our lives according to His wisdom and not ours. And when we seek peace through understanding and not faith, 
we tell God our wisdom is greater than his. The peace that surpasses understanding is the peace that is activated by faith. This is the peace that lives in hospital rooms and funeral homes. This is the peace that lives when finances are tight and the economy is in shambles. This is a peace that exists in light of rejection and failure. This is a peace that exists even when we don't know how to parent or what to do with our education or what career to pursue. This peace surpasses wars and persecution. This peace surpasses oppression. This peace surpasses separation. This peace surpasses hunger, loss, homelessness, poverty. Paul says that this peace guards our hearts, our emotions, our desires. You know, when it feels like your emotions are all balled up inside of you and have, you have no idea how to even begin working on them, God promises to guard your heart when you feel that way. When you're overwhelmed by emotion, the answer is not for us to first decipher our hearts, but for us to first run to God. He will guard our hearts. But this peace also will guard our minds. When thoughts are going wild, when you wake up and the anxious thoughts in the middle of the night overwhelm you, God promises to guard your mind. God promises to keep your thoughts under control. So when you're overwhelmed by your thoughts, run to God. He will guard your mind. Now, friends, look at the last three words in our passage today. There is a spiritual location here again. We experience this promised peace. Only if we are in Christ. This promise of joy and peace is only available to you today if you find yourself in Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is our peace. So the one question that matters today is, have you experienced the peace and joy? That is only available in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you because the call to obey in this passage today is beyond our ability. Father, we were called to rejoice, but we often 